You are listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Altogether, we make up Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, member-supported community radio. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Anderson Valley Brewing Company in Boonville, producing award-winning craft beers since 1987. Anderson Valley Brewing Company is the world's first solar-powered brewery and invites listeners to experience their brews at the new beer park. For more information, visit avbc.com. Mind if I sit down Everything you pray for Everything you play for me Hi and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore and tonight I'm interviewing Mendocino County's very own jazz scholar and producer, Fred Adler. We'll be discussing his lifelong love of jazz, as well as the peace and presence of John Coltrane with a special tribute to his musical legacy. So before I bring up the interview I did with Fred Adler earlier this week, I want to tell you a few things about him. A resident of the Wallala Coast since 1995, he has been a friend and mentor for me since we first met in the late 90s. For the past 18 years, he has coordinated the Redwood Whale and Jazz Festival on the south coast of Mendocino. He also hosted Sunday Evening Jazz once a month for 25 years on KZYX, and now he hosts the music of the page and screen from 1 to 3 on the first Saturday of the month right here on KZYX. He also hosted a popular jazz show called Wednesday Night Jazz, plus Sunday Musical Journeys, and a weekly coastal interview show for over 20 years on KTD FM Gualala. Needless to say, Fred knows a lot about jazz, and I hope you enjoy and learn from this conversation as much as I did. But first, here's Naima to get us in the mood. Thank you. 
Naima. <laughs> That's so beautiful. It's great to have you with me, Fred. It's, you have such radio experience, and then, of course, your specialty is jazz, and so we're putting together a special jazz show for all of you. And, Fred, why don't you talk about yourself, and maybe also just a little bit of a moment on Naima that we started the show with. Yeah, it was uh, Naima was uh, Col- John Coltrane's first wife. He later married <clears throat> Alice Coltrane, and... Um, it was written in, I believe, in the late fifties, and it's one of his more beautiful pieces. And even today, I just read that it was really his favorite piece of his beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, melodies. Wow! And it's spelled N A N A I M A. Yeah, and it's just so pretty, and it really does feel peaceful, right? Right. So yeah, very peaceful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about you and why you love jazz so much? Yes, I can do that. I think that the piece that I'm going to read eventually here called Syncopated Reveries will, will really give you a depth of that. Okay. But I was I spent many years in New York City. I was born in 1943, and I lived in New York City on and off until 1964 when I moved to Berkeley. And during the, the wonderful formative years of jazz uh, in New York City, I was at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And some of the pieces that I will read on my syncopated reveries will speak of that and my experiences in New York City. And then coming out here with jazz to San Francisco, 
Berkeley and Paris and so forth, and that is the essence of the piece well, that I will read. I, I feel like we should have you read that piece because we're focusing on John Coltrane, but your background and your understanding brings so much more depth to the conversation we're having. Would you be open to reading that now? Oh, absolutely, and, and I'd love to read it, and I, I did read it um, in your presence, actually, at the wonderful um, poetry and jazz events that you have been doing many, many years in Point Arena. Right, and, you and started. I read it there. It's your fault that we're doing them. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, and also I've added a few to it. There's one on Ro- Ross on Roland Kirk and one on Miles Davis that I wrote after after the original readings. And so I'll start now. These were written in April of 2003, and then I added more a few years later. Syncopated Reveries, and, and this was in anticipation of the first annual Redwood Coast Whale and Jazz Festival, of which I am the musical coordinator to this day but COVID's gotten in the way a bit. Okay, I carry vivid and poignant reflections of an intoxicating and vibrant 17-piece band in all of its swing-era grandeur in the verdant, balmy outdoor gardens of Honolulu's Grand Pink Palace. The Royal Hawaiian Hotel, built circa 1930, mutually shared the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, mutually shared with an eternal jazz-loving friend and partner, who I could talk about more, she loved jazz, sipping on the unsurpassed, authentic Mai Tais of the islands in the gentle, temperate breezes. And I carry vivid and poignant reflections of live and intoxicating local jazz, that would be the uh, Ledford House, yeah, over dinner and drink at the coastal Ledford House, mutually shared with a dear and lost friend of a former time. Sifting through dreamlike moments, I am now in a starry, moonlit September night at the Monterey Jazz Festival, witnessing the pulsating brass section of the Duke Ellington Orchestra of a dawning and beautiful New York City Harlem, weaving their hypnotic trance on Ellington's melancholy and atmospheric composition, Mood Indigo. That would be in the 1960s. And then I am observing the invincible and monumental saxophone colossus, Sonny Rollins, striding across the soft Monterey lawn in order to observe just where this, I would want to observe just where this tenor titan might next stroll. And I'll add, I followed him around a bit. I guess I stalked him a little, but not too bad. But I just was curious where he'd go. And then in a moment, my vision's, uh, travel to the curvature of the underground Lacave nightclub on the left bank of Paris, 1960, soaking in the cool, youth-filled Parisian ambience and their absolute adoration of le jazz American. Now I'm just two steps behind the percussive hands, feet, and piano of the eccentric enigma pianist-composer Thelonious Monk, night after night until 3 a.m. in the smoke-filled, perfumed, chattering, and unforgettable uh, milieu of Birdland, the jazz corner of the world at 52nd Street and Broadway, New York City in 1962. And these are two of his pieces I name, and I, le- I learned that from you, Blake, when you wrote the piece about Coltrane. Because you added <laughs> Crepuscule with Nelly and Ruby My Dear, will be forever by my side. Monk's music. Now, this is extraordinary that I was able to do that three nights in a row and 
<laughs> that close to Monk. I mean, this is, he's a legend. Right. Beyond, beyond <laughs> a legend. Now, George Shearing, the pianist, composed that famous tune called Lullaby of Birdland. But who could doze off there within this world-renowned club's smoldering energy of Manhattan jazz during its shimmering, shimmeringly formative pinnacle decades of the 60s? Cannonball Adderley with Youssef Latif, Art Blakey, Charles Mingus, all significant Birdland reveries. Saw them all there. From New York's Birdland to San Francisco's legendary jazz workshop, bearing witness to the transitional and revelatory musical revolution emanating from the gentle spiritual soul, the gentle spiritual soul of the master John Coltrane. Train who altered perceptions of this revered music forever with both lyrical and tumultuous outpourings from deep within his outwardly silent demeanor. I would return faithfully each night, sometimes to sit and to stare in awe from the very front row, and other nights to stand outside the open door entrance with others, the roaring and often gentle and sensitive sound pouring out onto the nocturnal North Beach Street, surrounded by other witnesses to an uplifting musical and spiritual awakening from the inner soul of an unassuming musical visionary. And we will talk more about train as this, uh, Coltrane as this uh, show goes on, I hope. A San Francisco newspaper strike in 1966, only six patrons arrived at the jazz workshop to hear the seminal trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie with formidable altoist James Moody, and I am among them. Was Dizzy putting on a partially private performance for me, or was I, was I dreaming? I, I pinched myself twice, and Diz and James were still there, beaming before me, inspired and exploratory as ever, before a mere handful of the devoted. And sometimes, if I shut my eyes and allow my thoughts and senses to catch reverie, I am instantly transported to these magical and illusory places, and the sounds, smells, and sights come floating back into a precise radiance, cadence of awareness. None of it is gone now. Still more is beckoning as the mystery and mystique of a life lived primarily for the timbre of these magical instruments and personalities continues to unfold for me. Future potential musical awakenings await in clubs, concerts, festivals, even recordings, and my insatiable love and craving for this rich ambience, for this rich ambience and uh, sound will continue to compel me to seek out those isolated moments of transcended joyful ten and tangible musical bliss. Thoughts drift back to a night at the plush Venetian room in San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel. I can clearly see the Divine One, Sarah Vaughan, singing her heart out for the tourists, her neck bare in a low-cut gown, apologizing to the audience that her jewelry trunk had been late in arriving. But wait, was, was sassy Sarah toying with her audience? She had never performed wearing a necklace, according to my videotapes. And I can see Lambert Henriks and Bavon. After Annie Ross left the group, it was Lambert Henriks and Bavon. The, the, the great group had been uh, Lambert Henriks and Ross. 
and I can see uh, Lambert Henriksen Bavon vividly, directly before me, like certain cartoon caricatures. Downtown, those down those famous narrow stairs at New York City's downtown Village Vanguard, high spirited and in their prime, still grandly influential to this day. And the modern jazz quartet in their customary black suits at Broadway's El Matador and North Beach, with legendary vibus Milt Jackson staring above, hypnotically expressionless, while the magnificent Percy Heath took an elegant bass solo. And I can still see alto man Johnny Hodges in front of Duke Ellington's band behind that odd, implacable, expressionless, almost jaded mask of his while he crafted and curled notes of unsurpassed delicacy, passionate emotion into the night air, performing Billy Strayhorn's sublime composition, Daydream. Roland Kirk. Roland Kirk, that mystical, all-seeing, blind snake charmer, digging in with his sleight-of-hand musical avalanche nightly in New York City's famous, world-famous Five Spot Cafe, 1961. Kirk simultaneously handles three reeds, tenor sax, manzello, and stritch, effortlessly, no gimmickry, sounding like a multiple-part band, playing complex harmonies and intense melodies and improvisations. Three reeds remarkably all in his mouth at once, <laughs> producing blissful, and let me hold on one moment here, producing blissful, blissful sounds of rough, gritty passion, love, and startling nuance. His music pours forth a mesmerizing stream from this obsessed black shaman. Kirk's sardonic tongue-in-cheek wit, his iconoclastic and brilliant storytelling, the exposed naked soul of this force on stage, philosopher and prophet, punctuating the late night air at this historic East Village club. Every night I would arrive alone about 10 p.m., sitting front row center, ordering good food, ordering good food and um, a long night of music, dinner, and drink back then, 1961, costing perhaps only $7.50 for three sets and a dinner. My older brother Bill strolls in round midnight, neither one of us knowing the other one will be there. We wave knowingly across the smoke-filled nightclub. A sultry summer's New York City nocturne spent witnessing Roland, not as yet named Rasan Roland Kirk, that came later. His unparalleled energy and humor penetrating our impressionable fresh spirits forever in the ultimate city's palpable, humid, dank, and steamy summer night. Summer night air back in the 1961 again. Two brothers touched forever, touched by an otherworldly poetic maven, never to be the same. Rasan Roland Kirk, a probable bodhisattva. <laughs> and now Miles <laughs> Davis. <laughs> Miles Davis in 1965, 
San Francisco's Jazz Workshop. Miles was late for the first set at, at North Beach's Jazz Workshop. His brand new group of young musicians is performing without him until his arrival. Herbie Hancock piano, Wayne Shorter tenor sax, Ron Carter bass, 17-year-old Tony Williams drums, then all relatively unknown, are playing their own superb compositions. My God, enormous history in the making. All are now legends themselves, but the audience and myself included are anxiously anticipating the arrival. Excuse me. Are anxiously anticipating the elusive arrival of this enigma, Miles Davis. Midway through the third number, the elegant, controversial trumpeter saunters onto the bandstand, dressed impeccably in his dark, tailored pinstripe suit, dapper and slim as always. Miles puts instrument to lips, and the musical energy instantly crackles like an intense electrical lightning storm, slicing through the club's darkness. The man has now fully made his presence known, and the superb quartet's previously fine sound suddenly becomes a mighty force in Miles' presence and his music still today to be reckoned with. The Miles Davis Quintet of 1965, taught, pulsating, groundbreaking, now famous and revered, has arrived on the world scene. The music will never, never be the same again. Miles smiles, and in a silent way, it's ESP. Again, Blake, those are titles of some of his numbers, as you, as you did right. with Coltrane. Yeah. That voice, that, I'll say, Miles smiles, and in a silent way, it's ESP. That voice, that voice, that sound, that brilliance, that trumpet, do not ever dare to turn your back on this leader's evolutionary, revolutionary harmonic heralding. Was I ever truly there, or do my idealized romantic notions deceive me? Did I ever shake the hand of the archangel Gabriel? I mean, Louis Armstrong. That summer evening at the Music Inn in Lenox, Massachusetts. Lenox, Massachusetts. Or was I near that? Or was it near that towering, majestic statue of Satch in the New Orleans French Quarter Cemetery on that transfixing celebratory lunar night? a musician, Banu Gibson's vocal wailing at an historic club on nearby Bourbon Street. One day, just perhaps, I shall awaken and discover the actual truth of these significant reveries, or perhaps not. Yeah. That was so wonderful, Brad. <laughs> oh, thank you, Blake. That's thank sweet. You. Oh, I just went on a journey with it. Yeah, and then I and then I That's added that at the time I wrote it, I read I read, please relish our at the time first annual Redwood Coast Jazz Festival. It will surely contain moments from which your own personal jazz dreams will be indelibly etched. Now, that is um, my piece. What legacy you've got to be part of the evolution of music? You were right there witnessing it, and I didn't realize that they were so young. Mm-hmm. They really were stepping out, weren't they? Mm, yeah, and and, and yeah. certainly the Miles the Miles incident in '65. They were all in their twenties at the time. Not Miles wasn't, but Miles wasn't, but Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and their legends uh, today and Ron Carter, mm-hmm. Tony mm-hmm. Williams, 
Tony was 17. That was an unusual. And, and at that time, uh, because he was 17, they had to suspend their liquor license at the jazz workshop for that week. Well, just thank you. You know, I want to punctuate with, so there's Fred's background, everybody. <laughs> That's some That's of it. That's why Fred loves jazz. There's 15 minutes worth of Fred's background by the book, right? <laughs> That's some of it. I have a list of other... Um, of those uh, moments for me uh, that I haven't written yet, but I write them very quickly when I get inspired, and there's about 10 others that I want to add to it at some point in time. I just want to take a moment and let you know that you're listening to Be More Now, right here on KZWX. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm speaking with Fred Adler, jazz scholar, and then some. We're going to turn the show toward the direction of Coltrane. And I'm curious, what makes Coltrane so important to you and your appreciation of the music? Well, let me let me say, not just, and I'll, I'll add this to to what you asked, to me or to the to the entire jazz world or anybody who knows or has come in contact with Coltrane's music or not even his music, but his spiritual journey. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to sort of quote from this piece that he, he wanted to harness uh, the mystical language of music itself, he said. And his study of Indian music and, and other and Hindu and, and world music led him to believe that uh, certain sounds and scales could produce specific emotional meanings and feelings in people. And when we, when we listen to Coltrane's uh, to- specific tone, his music, and uh, his, his, his uh, spiritual journey, it, it goes, it, it's transcendent, and it goes beyond just a person who loves jazz or a person who wants to know about jazz. And according to Coltrane, the, the, the goal of music was to understand those emotional forces and control them and even elicit a response from his audience. And if, I want to quote now within this article. He said, I would like to bring to people something like happiness. I would like to, this is crazy, I mean, not crazy, but this is wild what he says now. I would like to discover, uh, John Cohn said, I would like to discover a method so that if I want it to rain, it will start to rain right away. And if if one of my friends is ill, I'd like to be able to play a certain song and he'll be cured. (laughs) When when he'd uh, have no money, I'd bring out a different song and immediately he'd receive the money that he needed. In other words, a healer. You know, I've recently gotten certified in sound healing and, and music. And so in that sound healing sense, of course, that's what he was doing. And you listen to his music and it takes you there because mm-hmm. your nervous system becomes more resonant and that beauty relaxes you. And the more relaxed and resonant you are, of course, the healthier you, you become. It's true. Right? We're resonating DNA. <laughs> it's true. But as, yeah. as a, he, he passed on uh, July 17th, uh, 1967, I, I had the pleasure or the privilege of, of doing a three-hour show for him that day about him on KPFA in Berkeley. I called the station and I asked them, I owned uh, the Ashby Flower Shop at the time at Ashby and Telegraph in Berkeley. I called the station I said, is anybody going to do anything? Coltrane passed on unexpectedly today at the age of 40. He had liver cancer, that's well known. He had been addicted at one time, but he was on a spiritual journey and cleaned himself up. And they said, you sound really uh, like you would be the person to do it because our regular person, Phil Elwood, is away. And I got my little VW a bug and <laughs> put all my Coltrane albums down there, marked some things on the liner notes, and did a three-hour uh, program that day that he that he passed on on KPFA that's- in Berkeley. 
specific. Yeah, thing. yeah, that, that's such an amazing opportunity. And I saw him play many, many times. Should we play another one of his songs? I think that would be nice. Let's play Alabama. Okay, so let me introduce this. Uh, Alabama was written in the early 60s. About Well, it was, it was released in 64, I would say. It originally was on the Live at Birdland album, and certainly it speaks for itself, the tone and the somberness of the what was going on in the civil rights uh, of the South during the, um, that period of the 60s.
I was just kidding. I said, can we listen to it again? <laughs> oh, you love it, yeah. But, Let me just say, Alabama also featured McCoy Tyner Piano, the E-Quartet of the 60s of Coltrane, uh, Jimmy Garrison on bass, and Elvin Jones, the drummer. And I also want to say that I meant to say this a little earlier, and then I got sidetracked saying about my show on KPFA about Coltrane the day that he passed, that Coltrane's music as it evolved until until he until he passed on in 67 starting around 65 66 in there became more and more tumultuous and more and more free form more and more trying to depict this the sounds of 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 human screaming and human anguish and so forth so that it's not all beautiful and mellow and pretty or even swinging it it became it got, got to a point where the critics and the people didn't really understand what he was doing, but it set the, the tone of the of of the free jazz uh, spirit of the of the mid to late sixties. Do you find yourself listening to the more modern compositions, touching the same frequency that Coltrane and some of the other people did? Well, I think, uh, of course, his son Ravi is, is has been very prominent on the jazz scene for the last maybe fifteen years or more. Uh, Ravi uh, plays tenor sax, and I saw Ravi Coltrane a, a few times. He was named after Ravi Shankar. Ravi, Ravi is not his father, nor does he want to be, nor does he claim to be. But he is an exceptional musician. And the point is, the real for me, and and I think when when I listen, you want to be moved and you want to feel it in your body. And Coltrane mm-hmm. is remarkable in that regard. And I'm not, I I, can, I haven't heard anybody who does to my body and feelings and spirit and emotional uh, state that Coltrane did. No, nobody has reached right. that. And I, and I think that most people in jazz would agree with that. He was remarkable in that regard. He was truly funneling. Some people say channeling, but I think of it as funneling, that you get clear enough or hollow enough inside that something truly pure can come through you, that you become a conduit for some deeper language. Right. And yeah. yes, I feel that way. Right, and there's much yeah. that can be said about, you know, if we had time, the, the whole journey that Coltrane did go through after he cleaned himself up from heroin and, and alcohol and uh, began his spiritual journey himself and then through his music and his wife, Alice Coltrane, who also who played harp and, and piano and also was on that same journey. That might be a good segue into my piece. You inspired me and asked me to put together a piece on John Coltrane. And that you were, you had the San Francisco Jazz Quartet playing the Redwood Whalen Jazz Festival at Walala Arts, and you wanted me to do this after intermission. And it was a poetry tribute to John Coltrane. And mm-hmm. I created something that I called 
thank you train, and then underneath it, quotes dedicated to you, which as some of you might know is a John Coltrane song. And Fred gifted me books and discs and things to do, and it was a very intense, deep dive study. And you brought me into the radio station, God, early 2000, I think, you know, and asked me to read poetry. And, I, and so there was all this time where I would come in and you would just play and we'd sit and you'd do your show. And every once in a while, I'd come in and do something with you. The schooling that I got from you really did impact and shift my, my love of music and my musical taste. So this was a deep dive. You're going to hear a saxophone that Steve Heckman, who was playing on sax. At some point, Pat jumped up, Pat Clovis, and played some bass. It was the third annual. Uh, I want to say that uh, Steve, he- Steve Heckman's uh, saxophone, he, he, is, he loves Coltrane and has studied a lot of Coltrane. So he was the perfect match to be playing behind you. And I will say that I did memorize this piece, so I said it from heart. And we had a, a live audience, and this is the live audience recording. The name of this poem is The Thank You Train. And it's dedicated to you. I want to talk about you, your thick vertical flow, superhuman devotion, wise one, unquenchable soul eyes and ears, barely twelve, discovering how life vanishes from flesh and you, your father, grandmother, uncle, slipping away so soon. And you, you already struck by a penetrating blue that only solitude could color. You learned, you learned to tunnel inward, mother close, Delving to survive your own infinity. Find your cover, your calling in music. Thank you, John, for emerging deep in thought, ribboning them out into harmonics becoming a train in motion, a wild discipline firm in the voicings of the past so you could blow us all into the future. Invite us to scale your arpeggio spiral, meet you in vast cosmos of expression. I wish, I wish I could catch all you say. Translate your explosions of sun, your smoky chaos, intricate obsession. Risk everything to explore your precarious overhaul of bliss. But I taste, I taste your revelation. Chew it through my ears. Feel it turn me into an angel, a wailing child, an empty beach, the teeming sidewalks. God, 
powered by mind and music, your engine and rail, the station, its passengers, a language rooting down, reaching up, crossing the earth in wide swatches of crescendo, diminuendo, steady ground crashing into air as you stretch between grass and nebula. Thank you, John, for my impressions, my favorite thing set free to roam after the rain of your sunlight. Like someone in love, I am a dreamer too, entranced by your lush life, your velvet scenes and straight streets, violet furs, chronic blues, leaving me breathless, breathless like Sunday vodka, soft light, sweet music, and you, only you can do this at moment's notice. You, a rhapsody of time squeezed into a giant step, never to be taken the same way twice. Thank you, John, for living on, for raising the baseline, for trusting my ability to withstand your sheets of sound as they dive into original ocean. Yours is good bait beyond Friday fishing around. You lure the innocent, the initiated, into unfeasible landscapes with mountains stacked between notes. I bask in your vigor, mammoth meditation wrapped in intoxicating breath. Alto, tenor, soprano, pure prayer playing to the light we wake to each day. But tonight, tonight I am chasing the roar of your silence, imagining your face before me, eavesdropping as Garrison turns flamenco, building the crowd, tension, release, tension, release. You quietly busting in, gaze inward, sound everywhere, vein, breath, belly, fingers, brass to bone, tree to tongue, searching searching to create more of that spirit talk. Roll in it. Drink from it. Swallow a star. Exhale it out. Just one. Just one is food enough to make a planet talk. Even listen. Thank you, John, straight through my heart.
no angles, just a circle, revolution around center, around an inhale that even death can't see, around a spell that embodies epic variation and Do I love you because you're beautiful or because you believe? Ever the equinox. A lover living by the consistency of numbers. Your sapphire runs prodding me to focus on acknowledgement, resolution, pursuance, song. Softly, softly as in a morning sunrise, spiritual, India impressions, making it easy to remember life out of this world. Thank you, John, for always coming back to me. Like you, I was born to live. Scatter stardust and simple like. Don't worry, I'll get by. Double clutching ole. Counting down forever in that shining hour, uttering three little words. Thank you, John. You are compassion and its consequences offering to be living space. I can say it over and over again. Thank you, satellite sonship, promise of evolution, selfless tapestry in sound. I climb your stairway, track your joy you're attaining to peace on earth where all are welcome. Amen. Own and love supreme. Thank you. But and I always loved the the feeling of it and the way you expressed yourself, and also using so many of the uh, titles of the of the pieces that Coltrane either wrote or recorded throughout. Right. Uh, that's the esoteria uh, of it. Um, and and as I say, I picked up on that in a couple of my essays, uh, influenced by what you did there. Uh, right. Sometimes people may not realize because they don't know the entire oeuvre of a, of a musician, so they don't know that's what's happening. But uh, in some cases, I do want to mention in a, a, a Love Supreme, uh, I, I wouldn't want to let this whole piece uh, go go by without mentioning his seminal uh, uh Composition, A Love Supreme, that came out in 1964. And from then on, 
it, uh, his music evolved and evolved and became more tumultuous and more and more tumultuous. That's a beautiful piece, uh, Blake. Can I tell you th- what I was going to say now about his uh, spirituality that I did find? Yes, please yeah. do. Uh, Coltrane, uh, I'm, I'm going to sort of paraphrase and read a bit, but I don't want to read verbatim. But in 57, he had a religious experience that uh, may have helped uh, helped him overcome the heroin addiction and alcoholism that he had uh, struggled with since, actually since, which I didn't realize, 1948. And in oh, wow. in the liner notes of A Love Supreme in 1964, he, he says that it, he experienced, and this is quoting now uh, Coltrane, that in 1957, he uh, experienced, by the, he says, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me, Coltrane states, to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. And he, he mentions God in a universalist sense and didn't never, never advocated one religion over another. It, you know, it was across the board, Om and, and Hinduism and, and uh, <laughs> you, you name it. It was, it was everything. It was all one, all one. And peace and, and love, and that's what we need, uh, given what's happening in the world today. Always, always. What the world needs now is love, that wonderful song by by Burt Backrack. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, right? Wow. Oh, I just long for the music of my youth because so much of it was about peace and connecting, and it lacked that angry edge that so much of what's out there seems to express, the division and the intolerance. A friend of mine, she's now moved away from Mendocino County into Nevada, kind of in the middle of an area full of the kind of people that she didn't like based on their political preferences. And she just said she realizes that some of her hatred toward them was the same thing she was so mad at them about and that they were actually really nice and super tolerant of her. And she just said it's really shifted the way she's thinking. You know, it hasn't changed her politics, but the way she's treating and and thinking about the other side, so to speak. So it's just really great to hear that. And I think the more of us that can try to find that place inside ourselves the way I always thought we used to do where we made the room for different and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. just an interesting aside, you know. Yeah. So well, I think, you, you yeah. know, the, the uh, Wallala Arts Center has a series, and I, I will I will say that I, I created that series back a number of years ago. It's called the, the um, Global Harmony Series, and the, uh, the wording is uh, encouraging global harmony by sharing cultures through the arts. And the Wallala Arts Center has had art exhibits and music and other medium to express uh, this this idea. Now, Coltrane, it was interesting you said the word angry of divisive because Coltrane's music, interestingly enough, given everything we've said about him, peace and love and so forth, was so tumultuous starting around uh, 1966 and 7 or, late, or even starting in 65, that it, it it evolved into a, a that, what I mentioned earlier such a tumultuous sound that he was accused of, of of it being angry music and he would say no he didn't really feel that way and he didn't understand why people heard it that way he was trying to uh, create a, the sound of the universe the sound of human anguish but it wasn't anger on his part he wasn't putting out angry music but it really was so so free form as I said earlier that it's very hard to listen to even to this day. 
right. was shrieking and growling and so forth. And he teamed up with a, another wonderful saxophonist named Pharaoh Sanders during those years and others. And and it was, <laughs> yeah, oh, man, it, it's, it's hard on the years, I have to admit. Well, I want to point out that we're now out of time, and I want to make sure that you introduce Wise One, and we'll just take this show out with Wise One so people can hear that. Well, Wise One was, came out, I think, I was on the Crescent album in 1965. Um, I had a, a friend who, uh, in the 80s, who had only heard Coltrane's My Favorite Things, which was played on soprano sax, and she said she didn't like Coltrane because he sounded like bagpipes. And that's because the soprano is very high and he, you know, and he blew, and like that. And I sat her, I listened, listened to a Wise One uh, one morning, and when she came to visit me, we lay down on the bed and listened to Wise One. And after it was over, she said, oh, my God. She changed her mind. So, <laughs> it is so profound. And, and the title speaks for itself. And, again, it's John Coltrane on tenor sax. McCoy Tyner on piano, Jimmy Garrison on bass, and Elvin Jones on drums. 1965, Wise One, John Coltrane, a masterpiece. Thank you so much for bringing culture and understanding of jazz to our communities. Yeah, thanks, Blake. And, and, and you know, I've known you for many, many years, and we've shared a lot. And, and I've interviewed you down here in Guadalajara a few times. And uh, I like riffing with you and... Uh, Love you. Ditto. <laughs> I would also, and I would also say, be more now. Oh yes, indeed. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the voice of jazz scholar and deep, deep appreciator, Fred Adler. You've been listening to "Be More Now." I'm going to take us out with "Wise One," as promised. Stay tuned after this for. The Treehouse with W. Dan. Have a beautiful rest of your evening.
Thank you. 